Today's reading is from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, why are you doing, what are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom for our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Amen. Good morning, y'all. My name is Jonah. Hi, Jonah. Hi. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I'm the lead pastor here at Zao MKE Church. And it's so good to be with you on this morning, which is so warm outside. <laughs> A little ironic for us. Um, as some folks mentioned, this is a real throwback for those of us who were, uh, who were a part of this community back in the days of the Miramar Theater, um, when it was ch- this chilly this often. But, um, but I promise this is a one and only uh, morning here. This is not our normal pattern. So um, as Carrie said, encourage you to, to snuggle up to one another um, for our, our cozy Sunday here. And we'll be back to normal blasting heat from our very powerful boiler next Sunday. But we are here today starting a new series called The Last Week. Um, We've actually entered a time called Lent, and so for this period of time, uh, we are going to be um, walking through the the last week of Jesus' life as we prepare for Easter. And so today, um, some of you may have seen in our our Facebook events and our announcements, today we're doing Palm Sunday. Woo! So some of you may be wondering, Jonah, why are we doing Palm Sunday? It is very clearly not Palm Sunday. Some of you may be saying, Jonah, what is Palm Sunday and why are people asking you about it? I don't know what that is at all. Am I alone? And still more of you may be saying, hey, I think I might know what Palm Sunday is. I don't know when it's supposed to be, but aren't there supposed to be palms? And why is the altar covered in protest signs? See, here at Zao, we actually call Palm Sunday Protest Sunday. And we will get into that as we go about what it really means to celebrate a planned and staged protest by Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem in the most important week of his ministry. But before we get into Sunday, Palm Sunday, Protest Sunday, I want to let you know a little bit more about Lent. So we are approaching the season of Easter. We are definitely not there yet. Easter is coming in April. And for the 40 days before that, minus Sundays, is the season of Lent. It's an important 40 days. It's 40 days because that's how long Jesus spent in the desert being tempted by the devil. And so um, to kind of capture that experience and to to live into the story of Jesus' life and ministry, we spend 40 days, minus Sundays, 
reflecting on the things that tempt us, that draw us away. Uh, Fasting, the way that Jesus fasted in the desert. Has anybody ever heard of people giving up something for Lent? Show of hands. A lot of nodding. Okay. Um, If you haven't, no worries. What it is is that during this time for 40 days, minus Sundays, um, we, uh, a lot of folks will give something up. We'll fast from something. Now, Jesus in the desert um, gave up food and water. That one sounds really tough. So a lot of us give up like meat (laughs) or chocolate or coffee. Um, Other folks, uh, as they are preparing for Easter and, and in this journey of Lent, trying to spend some time with God in their own desert, Um, and in their own solitude and contemplation, turning inward to face themselves and God. Uh, We'll we'll give up other things. Some people will hop off social media for that time, Um, or people will add things. Instead of a fast of removing, people will add a practice um, of daily devotions or a different type of prayer. It's not mandatory by any means, but it's an invitation to spend some time differently with God, to say, hey, I want to do something that I can't do every day of the year, but I could do for 40 days minus Sundays. Now, you may be wondering why minus Sundays uh, I keep mentioning. It's, you know, it's just a weird uh, kind of quirk of our calendar in some ways. Um, But in other ways, it's, it's that this liturgical calendar, this church calendar that says this is what we're thinking about when said, hey, yeah, we want to fast for 40 days. We want to spend 40 days in the desert with God. But it actually feels bad to fast on Sundays because every Sunday should be a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. And so we exempt Sundays so that we can spend those 40 days fully present to our longing for God, to our need for God, our hunger, sometimes literal if we're fasting from food, but to to really feel the needs that we have for God the gaps in our world where the divine is so needed and it just feels like there is brokenness. We are intentionally trying to connect to that space in our reality, to set aside time for mourning, for longing, and for hope. And yet every Sunday when we gather, we want to celebrate because we know that God has already risen, has already won and defeated death. And this tension of living in the world as it is and the longing that we have and the needs that we have, as well as holding on to the resurrection of God and the fact that victory has come and that Jesus is risen, this is hugely important to the Christian ethos. This is a part of Jesus' ministry from day one and, as we'll see, part of Holy Week from day one. And so, through this season of Lent, we want to be especially attuned to these different movements the need we have, the ache in our bodies, the ache in our world for salvation, but also the promise that it has already come. Now, Lent is a little bit like Advent. Um, So Advent is the preparation for Christmas. Uh, Lent is the preparation for Easter. In Advent, we kind of forget about Advent and all the preparation for Christmas just becomes Christmas, and then Christmas Day happens and it's over. Um, and that's the end of things. If y'all were around during Christmas, you heard me obnoxiously um, wishing everybody a Merry Christmas for a solid 12 days, um, because that is actually how long the Christmas season lasts. There's kind of a parallel in Lent. Um, Lent lasts for 40 days, but the Christmas, or I'm sorry, the Easter season isn't just that one Sunday. 
It's actually a whole series of weeks where we dwell primarily in the resurrection of our Lord, and we celebrate the fact that life is abundant. But we tend to forget that. Whereas with Advent, we collapse everything into Christmas and the celebration, the folks who celebrate Lent and Easter often will have this extended period of Lent with fasting, but will often lose that extended period of feasting with Easter. And so we want to be really mindful. We want to prepare ourselves for the feast. We want to have both and. We want to live in the world as it is and the world as it ought to be, in the kingdom that is coming, that is needed, and the kingdom of God that is already here now. And so we need space. We need space to prepare for that feast. We need space to feel the hunger that we have for God and for celebration. We need permission in church spaces to say everything is not okay. And that is what Lent is about. And so as we take this seriously, as we dwell in this season of Lent here at Zao, we want to remember the story of Jesus and the journey to the cross. We often get little snippets and pieces of Jesus' story, and they're always sort of jumbled on each other. That's partly the nature of our scriptures. There are four different versions of Jesus' teachings and life, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we excerpt from different ones at different times. But one of the things that, um, that I was surprised to learn when I first learned it was just how much of the Bible and how much of these four stories take place not in the one or three years uh, of Jesus' ministry out in the countryside, but a lot of our writings actually come from the last seven days of Jesus' ministry leading up to the cross. This last week was so fundamentally important that it occupies a ton of our scriptural and gospel space. But because we take little pieces, we never string them together and have that continuity of understanding Jesus was building towards something, something very specific. And all of these things are tied together in powerful ways. And so, for the next six and a half, seven weeks, 40 days minus Sundays, we are going to dwell in that last week. We're going to walk with Jesus through Jerusalem towards the cross. And we're going to see how much of the teachings that we call out here every Sunday when we gather come from those crucial moments outside of Jerusalem, in the temple, flipping over tables, at the table of the Last Supper with his beloved. We're going to walk through that week together. And so we start. We start with Sunday. Now, as I mentioned before, Sunday is often called Palm Sunday. And the reading that Mara um, offered us um, is, is the reading from the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be using Mark as our primary text. So as I mentioned, there are four different versions of Jesus' life and ministry, and they all tell the story a little bit differently from their own perspective. This is really helpful to us because it helps us understand a couple of things. One, it gives us four different perspectives on who Jesus was, so we have a richer picture. And two, it helps us to understand the nature of Scripture. That scripture is not sort of a, a passionless cataloging of facts. Scripture is an interpersonal storytelling experience where every person's perspective is going to be a little different. And each of the Gospels tells different details. Sometimes those details seem to contradict one another. And they tell the story and weave the story in the ways that make the most sense for them and for their context. So we're going to go with Mark. 
And one of the things that you'll notice about Mark is Mark has a really great sense of urgency. So immediately this happened, and then immediately something else happened so that immediately they could do the third thing. This is Mark's favorite phrase, is immediately. So there's this great urgency to the gospel of Mark. And so as we see Jesus on Sunday approaching Jerusalem, Jesus has been in the countryside with the peasants. Jesus is a peasant himself. He comes from a very small town, Nazareth. Um, And he's been all over Galilee and all over the place, um, ministering to, with, among, preaching to, and, and sharing meals with folks who are country folks, folks who are rural, folks who are poor. And he is approaching with a great many of them at this point, the city of Jerusalem. Now, they're coming for really specific reasons. Every year in the Jewish religious calendar, um, there is uh, something called Passover. And Passover is is a really, really important holiday, still is, um, and and was very much so in Jesus' day as well. Passover is the remembering of the time that the Jewish people were freed from slavery in Egypt. Now, you can imagine why this might be really important. (laughs) to celebrate liberation and victory, to celebrate the freedom claimed by God, not only in our hearts, but in our world. To say that when Jesus says things like, um, this is the year of the Lord's favor, the liberated, all shall be liberated, the oppressed um, shall be set free, the captives will be released. That Jesus isn't just talking metaphorically or spiritually, he's talking literally. And, and one of the ways that, uh, that that connects to his experience as a Jewish person in Palestine is that the Jewish people have this history of being freed, liberated by God from literal slavery. Now that had happened many, many thousands of years before um, this story takes place. But when they're entering into Jerusalem, their current context is that they're not exactly liberated then either. They're living under Roman occupation. And Rome makes that very, very clear. Rome is this huge empire. Rome has this particularity of of kingdom, of earthly empire that they like to enforce. And it comes with all sorts of military might and regalia and music and proclamations and costumes and horses. And so Rome has all of this pageantry that they, that they use to remind people that they are in charge. And the Jewish people of Palestine are not. That they are under occupation, that they are not free. And so you can imagine that during this time of year, when the Jewish people are celebrating their liberation and saying, we were set free from an oppressor by God, and they're doing that while they're under Roman occupation, and Rome wants to make sure that they are still able to oppress that there can arise some tension. It might not be comfortable for everybody in that moment. And so Rome really tightens their fist on, uh, on the Jewish people during this time of celebration. But the Jewish people are flooding from all over the place into the city of Jerusalem, where they come, where they pilgrimage every year to celebrate Passover. And so during this time, everybody's riled up. Jewish folks are excited, celebrating liberation, coming into the city. The Romans are a little on edge. They want to make sure they're, you know, this is when they they send in the extra cops just to make sure everybody is, you know, 
keeping orderly here. And so there's this tension between these two, these two groups. So when we see Jesus entering into Jerusalem on the week of Passover, we have to know that context. So how does he enter? Does he just kind of like slide into a side gate and be like, hey guys, I made it? <laughs> no. Jesus makes a huge entrance. And this huge entrance is really important for a lot of reasons. It's political theater. It's a protest. Jesus has this planned. Now, we like to pretend that everything just kind of fell into place around Jesus as the result of prophecy. But one of the things that this text does for us is it gives us an insight into some of the planning that Jesus did. Jesus says to his disciples, hey, go get me this colt. And like, I'll tell you where it is. And if anybody gives you a hard time, tell them that I sent you. And so they go, and people are like, what are you doing? You can't, what are you, you're just taking this colt. And they're like, it's okay, Jesus sent us. And they're like, oh, right, totally, yes, go. There is some pre-planning here. This isn't just sort of mystically coming together. This is coming together with forethought. This is Jesus saying, we are going to stage a protest. And so he gets all of his own imagery, while from the West, The Romans are coming in on their cavalry with their horses and their horns, with their costumes and their armor, with their war machine identity. They are marching into Jerusalem from the west. In comes Jesus from the east. And Jesus is coming in not on a war horse, but on a donkey. Now, we like to think like, oh, how humble of Jesus. Jesus is many things, and Jesus is humble as well, but Jesus is not coming in low here. Jesus is actually referencing another scripture about the coronation of kings. So Jesus coming in on a donkey is a throwback to this ritual of bringing in the new king on a donkey. And so while the army is coming in from one side, Jesus is coming in on a donkey saying, hey, new king coming into town. And while they have all of their Roman paraphernalia and their announcements, Jesus has that as well. But instead of coming with military might, Jesus is coming with the people, with God's people. And they are waving the the clothes on their back. And they are grabbing the palms from the trees. And they are making their own regalia, a regalia of peace and of kingdom in a new way, a different way. The anti-empire. They're saying, this is our king. Hosanna in the highest. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom we were promised. And so, in this moment of celebrating liberation under Egypt, they are coming in and saying, we are oppressed now, but here is our new king. Here is our new king, Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Now, Hosanna doesn't mean a whole lot to us now, except for those of us who have been at Palm Sunday or Easter services. Originally, in our scriptures, it means most literally, save, please. It's a cry for help. But it sort of morphs over time into praise. It becomes salvation. Thank you. It's praise to God for having saved. Praise God, the one who saves. That's what Hosanna means. But it holds this tension. It holds this tension of saying, we need salvation. Praise God, who is the true one who brings it. 
And by saying that, by saying Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, this is the people, the peasantry, the folks who are oppressed, the rural poor, charging the city saying, we know who the real king is and it is not Caesar. We know who the real king is. We know what the real kingdom is and it is not empire. It is not oppression. It is not power over or domination. It is power from below. It is power from love. It is the power of Jesus. I feel like y'all are soaking it in, but I want you here with me. So I'm going to ask that you shout with me. Can you shout with me, Hosanna? You look... Okay, a couple of you are ready. All right, ready? On the count of three, we're going to shout Hosanna, all right? One, two, three. Hosanna! All right. Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. One more time. Hosanna! God, save us. God, thank you for being the one who saves. Salvation. Praise God. My favorite modern parallel to the word Hosanna is a protest chant. It is, we believe that we will win. And it is my favorite to see the people of God in the streets, often jumping up and down. We believe that we will win over and over and over again. We believe that we will win is a type of Hosanna. It says, salvation, please, and salvation, thank you. It holds this tension that the kingdom is coming and already here, that God has won, that victory has won, and also not yet. That we live in this space in between where there is pain and suffering and oppression, that we hurt and we ache for the salvation of God, that we need to win against this thing that we are fighting. And also that we believe. We believe that we have won. We believe that God is victorious. We believe that Jesus defeats death and that life comes over and over and over again. Jesus is heading into Jerusalem toward his death, toward his torture and public execution but also toward his resurrection. The journey with Jesus is not easy. We don't actually get to skip over Jerusalem and emerge at the empty tomb. We have to go in to the cross, but we go in shouting, we believe that we will win. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And that is why on protest Sunday, we cover our altar with this beautiful work of the streets. We actually made a bunch of these signs um, last year at Palm Sunday. Um, the, the most liturgical ones say, hashtag not my Caesar, and Hosanna with palm branches here. But we also have ones that say solidarity, Black Lives Matter to God, Abolish ice. Trans people won't be erased. And I, I, the good news is that there are many fewer of them than there were when we first printed them a year ago because they have all gone to the streets. Over the past year, these signs have been with us in the streets proclaiming that we believe that we will win. 
And we don't go into the streets just for nothing. We go into the streets because there is oppression. We go into the streets to defend ourselves and one another. We go into the streets to proclaim that there is hope in a different kind of life, a different kind of kingdom, free from oppression and domination and empire. But resurrection doesn't come immediately, and we have to face death in order to do it. Jesus wasn't all shouts and smiles and hope when he came in to the city that day. I'm going to ask Sam to actually skip to the second slide that I asked them to put in. In the Luke version of this story, which is a little longer, Luke writes, As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, over the loss that has already taken place and the loss that is yet to come. Jesus faces death, not only his own, but the death that permeates our creation as we wait for resurrection. And he doesn't gloss over it, and he doesn't say, oh, no worries, because we're already victorious. He weeps and mourns and grieves and aches. He wants better for this city. He wants better for his people. And so, as he enters, he shouts and he weeps. Now, what happens when we, when the people, make a whole lot of noise? How do the people in power tend to react to that? <laughs> Badly. <laughs> This happens here with Jesus as well. Also in Luke's account, we can go back to that first text. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. People who are bought into the systems of power, people who are invested in the domination and empire of this world, even just people who are afraid that the kingdom that is promised cannot come about, people who think that we will not get freedom ever, and so it is better to be partially free. It is better to submit to the oppression of this world and hope that it doesn't get worse. There will always be folks who say, stop making so much noise. Let us face this death with peace. Let us face this death with silence. Let us die as little as we can and just hold on to that. Our hope is in minimizing damage. But Jesus says no. No, even as we weep, even as we face Jerusalem and cry and mourn and ache, even as we say, all is not well, we must shout, we must proclaim, we believe that we will win. The resurrection is coming and is here. God lives even as Jerusalem dies. And God will bring us back. God will make us whole. And we cannot ever be silent. Jesus promises that creation remembers even when we forget. That if we were to fall silent... If the people of God were to stop shouting Hosanna, the rocks themselves would cry out. That the earth beneath us remembers hope when we cannot. That the earth knows 
intimately that from death comes life over and over and over again. And so, how do we face the death in our world and the death in our life with weeping, with aching, with longing, and with hope? What are the parts of your being that ache, that need these 40 days to weep, that need some space to breathe and cry out, to say this hurts, all is not well, this is not okay. This 40 days is for that part of you to have full voice, to be heard, to weep over Jerusalem, over Milwaukee, over this country, over this world, over your life, to weep and mourn and long, and also to say, we believe that something better is coming and is here and has arrived. We believe that Jesus is Lord and that the kingdoms of this world are false. We believe that all will be made right. We believe that all is being made right, right now, partly in and through us. We believe that perfection is possible. We believe that love is pure and real and true and present. We believe that we can be made whole, even for only a moment, right here on this earth, when we are connected to God and one another. We believe that we will win. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. The Lord is risen, even as we march towards Jerusalem. Death is coming, and so is life, the life that defeats death, eternal life, the life in Jesus, the world remade, new creation, already and not yet. This is Holy Week. This is the breadth that Jesus brings to the cross to the city, to the temple. This tension, this already and not yet, this is in Jesus' heart and on Jesus' lips when he is flipping over tables, when he is disagreeing with the authorities in the temple, when he is sharing a meal with his friends, when he is betrayed by a loved one, when he hangs on the cross, and when he emerges victorious from the grave, already and not yet, entering into Jerusalem, declaring, Hosanna. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, we pray that you give us the strength to see more than the world has to offer, more than our imaginations can often hold. God, we pray that you would give us room to grieve, that in these 40 days we would create extra space for the longing in our hearts, for the aching we feel, for the crying out of our souls towards you that say, God, we need you, save us, please. And also, God, in the way of Jesus, 
and in the way of Jesus' people and in the way of those who organize for change, who protest the way things are, God, may we have the strength to declare Hosanna, salvation, thank you. We believe that you have saved us. We believe you are saving us. We believe in the new creation that you are making every moment, knitting together, healing us into your liberated, loved creation. God, you are good. Let us trust in that goodness, in the pain, in the weeping, and in the victory and the hope. In your name we pray. Amen.